Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning, everybody. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, And let me just pray for us as we dig into God's word together and look at the story of the raising of Lazarus. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of this world... Our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As you recognize, that was the collect for today. It's one of my favorite collects in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, God does rightly order our ruly wills and affections and something we pray for. You'll notice around the room, it looks a little different today. We have... Um, you know, this is our first year having icons, so we've shrouded those. The past, in Lent, uh, during Passion Sunday, we've shrouded the, the crosses in black. And um, it's a special day in the church's calendar. It's called Passion Sunday. If you have your Book of Common Prayer, it talks about Passion Sunday in there. Um, it occurs one week before Palm Sunday, which will be next Sunday. And we'll talk more about that at the announcements. Um, and, and it's the entrance here to a two-week season uh, that includes Holy Week, which is one week. Um, this season, this little two-week season is called Passion Tide. And so the crucifixes, the icons, if we had statues, uh, they would be veiled. I was sort of laughing out there because my son was helping me uh, set up and uh, had, had veiled himself. And I thought, oh, it's pretty great. He's veiling the, the glory of God for us. Uh, so, you know, that's the idea. And so what it does is it, it takes our focus um, off of certain aspects of, of the salvation story to focus on Jesus's journey to Jerusalem and how he comes to the crucifixion. And so these two weeks are this short season to help us focus on the blessed passion of Jesus. It's not just about suffering. There is blessing in it. It is redemptive. Um, Where Jesus willingly enters into the darkness as the light of the world and shines his light to those who have been trapped um, by sin and death. And so it's fitting that we enter Passion Tide with a gospel reading about uh, highlighting Jesus's greatest sign. If you read the Gospel of John, there are these signs uh, of inspiring people to faith. This is the seventh final and greatest sign. And the seventh sign is meant to inspire faith in the disciples and the Jews that he's proclaiming his kingdom message to. And there's an irony in this, because in raising Lazarus from the dead, rather than inspiring the Jews to faith in Judea, what he actually does is he seals his fate to be accused and then to be tried and ultimately to be crucified. Today's passage encourages us that the context for God revealing his glory It can be painful. The context for God revealing his glory can be painful. But this passage also shows us that God does not abandon those that he loves. This passage 
also shows us that God desires to renew his broken creation. And so Jesus, when we come to this story, he was a few days away from Judea and Jerusalem when he hears the news. He receives this message that Lazarus has grown ill. He's not dead yet, but he's, he's gotten um, terminally ill. And Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus. They were all siblings, brothers and sister, um, in this small town of Bethany, which was about two miles outside of Jerusalem, so well within walking distance. The sisters, Mary and Martha, they send to Jesus and they say to him, the one whom you love is ill. Not just, you know, Lazarus, he's sick and he's about to, the one whom you love has fallen ill. This is a friend of Jesus. This really is somebody who Jesus has intimate affection for as a friend that he's spent time with. And so in his um, commentaries, tractates on the Gospel of John, St. Augustine is quick to point out that Jesus does not love and then abandon. Jesus doesn't love and then abandon. It's not in his character to do that. And that's actually the basis of Mary and Martha's appeal. Jesus, this is somebody who you have loved, so don't abandon him. But Jesus, instead of going immediately from where he's at, um, a couple days journey away, he waits. It's really weird. He waits two whole days before he makes the journey to Bethany. He's like 100 miles away, which in walking days is quite a number of days away. And so by that point, by the time he gets there, Lazarus is already dead. And one of the major lessons the disciples are going to need to take from that moment is that Jesus does not abandon those that he loves, even though it feels here like Jesus is actually doing that. He doesn't. He's, he's waiting until it seemed like it was too late to do anything. He, he was waiting for that. And, and we shouldn't mistake his waiting for being apathetic or worse, that he's actually rejecting Lazarus. The disciples would need this reminder just a few chapters later uh, because Jesus is going to be crucified. And then they would need that reminder again as well because not only is Jesus crucified, but later on, 11 of the 12 disciples are going to face martyrdom. And the church has always needed this reminder that the light of the world is going to conquer the darkness and that the places that feel the most dark to us right now, those places that feel dead, that feel like they're beyond the help of God, those are the places that form the context for God to work, for God to speak light into. In the cross, there's no suffering that's wasted. And so to say it positively, in the light of the cross, suffering is redeemed. The suffering that we go through, the darkest places now in the light of the cross are redemptive. And so our reading this morning picks up at verse 18, where we find Jesus comforting Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus had died, and many of the people from Jerusalem were coming at this point to console Mary and Martha. This is a common thing that would happen in their culture, and they were close to Jerusalem. So people were traveling from Jerusalem to come comfort them. Mary and Martha have this deep and abiding faith. We can see it throughout the Gospel of John. They have a deep abiding faith that Jesus is the one who is promised of God. And they believe his message. They trust that he can heal and that he can deliver. But they don't, not, they don't yet know that he can raise the dead. They know him as a healer, but they don't know him as someone who can raise the dead. And Martha has gone out early in this passage to meet Jesus while he's 
coming to them while Mary stayed home. After she encountered Jesus, she goes back and tells Mary that Jesus is calling for her. So Mary then goes to meet Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And she actually says the same words that Martha had just said earlier in the passage. They both say this phrase, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I take that as a statement of faith, right? Because they know Jesus is a healer and they have yet to know that Jesus can raise the dead. And so then it's like all of a sudden we come with Jesus at the tomb. Mary's talking to him. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Everyone around him is crying. And it's like the camera shifts to Jesus. But with this big panorama, just kind of looking out, seeing all these faces of people mourning for the death of Lazarus. And we see Jesus look up at them and he looks at Mary weeping and he looks at the crowds weeping. And it's, it says that he's flooded with this intense negative emotion. And it's not just sadness, but actually it's something like anger. Uh, and in fact, the New Living Translation says a deep anger welled up within him and he was greatly troubled. So he has this flood of emotion. It's, it's like a troubled anger. And, and I think it's interesting that while the crowd is weeping, that's his deep inner response. It's a troubled anger. And I don't think that it's divorced from his compassion. Um, right? Those two things can work together. But this isn't just Jesus being sad because his friend died, which is what everybody else is sad, is sad about. I think it goes deeper than that. And so I spent a lot of time this week thinking about Jesus weeping. And originally, when I was thinking about this, I could not figure it out. Why is Jesus weeping here? Um, he is nothing if not calm throughout the rest of the story. The entire time. And, and that's because Jesus, of all people, knows the heart of the Father intimately. He's cultivated habits that help him know the heart of the Father. He's God incarnate. That also helps him know the heart of the Father. And so, and so he knows that he's going to reveal the works of God. He knows that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he can tell the disciples earlier, he's just sleeping. Um, and so when I get confused uh, about a passage in scripture, sometimes I go back and I look at trusted sources that the church has found helpful um, from a long time ago. And so I went back 1,500 years and um, <laughs> I asked a, a departed friend about Lazarus. And uh, so somebody I really love reading, one of my, my favorite authors from 1,500 years ago is a guy named Jacob, who is the Bishop of Sarug, which is kind of like from southern Turkey to northern Saudi Arabia, um, about 100 years, he's right about 100 years before Islam uh, arose. And he has a whole homily on the raising of Lazarus. Fortunately, it's not translated yet, but I found some nuggets in here that were really helpful. So I'm going to give you a little bit of my uh, extemporaneous translation. And, um, and I want you to be blessed by this because it, it just, it blessed me as I read it. So here's what St. Jacob says about the raising of Lazarus. Jesus, his tears came from sadness with great agony about humanity, which death destroyed and cast down to shale. Jesus wept about the family of humanity, how it was ravaged and brought low and became food for the serpent. And look, the serpent consumed it. 
Because of the destruction with de- which death brought to humanity, the Messiah wept, not about the dead one who was going to be resurrected. So toward Lazarus, he set his face to resurrect him. And about the resurrection, which he was about to bring about, he was not weeping. He wept about the great destruction which came upon humanity and about how great the fall was of the beloved human family. His tears flowed for he saw that there were weeping, that they were weeping at the end of their hope. And without a commemoration of the resurrection of the dead that was in their memories, he wept on account of us, that he might be like us in all things. And he sent his power that he might perform a miracle which suited him. In his tears which flowed, the Son of God resembles us. And in the resurrection that he made dawn there, he resembles his Father. So as Jesus looks on the crowds, he weeps for those who have no hope. These people have come to the end of themselves. There's nothing that they, they've lost all hope. They've experienced sadness because of the effects of sin in the world. And these are people who have not tasted the joy of Jesus' resurrection yet. As of yet, they don't know he's going to be resurrected. Jesus seems to say it a lot, and the disciples keep forgetting. So I imagine that everybody else in the crowd is the same way. They don't see a way out. And so when the crowds say, look at Jesus, see how much he must have loved him. What they actually should have said is, if they really understood who God was and why Jesus was weeping, see how much God loves the world that he's made. See how much God loves the world that he's made. He's weeping over the brokenness that sin has introduced into the world. And so I, I do want to be careful because grief, grief is proper and appropriate. And so we should make sp- space for grief because there are things that are really broken and, and the world around us is broken. There are sorrows and sadnesses now that we can weep for because Satan has ruined what God has made good. And, and so whether that's the death of a friend or a marriage that fails or a chronic illness, some kind of deep unmet longing that we're sitting with, there's space for grief because the world is broken. And so there's this quote that I found really helpful this week. It's attributed to St. Ephraim. And, and it says, give God weeping and increase the tears in your eyes. Through your tears and God's goodness, the soul which has been dead will be restored. Through your tears and through God's goodness, the soul which has been dead will be restored. Which reminds me of a passage in scripture that we often pray. It's Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Tears can be seeds of renewal because when there's proper grief, we're coming to know the heart of God for a broken world. This is why Jesus weeps. So Jesus shows us God's heart for what's broken. And he also shows us God's ability to do exactly what the Good Friday Collect prays about. It says, let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up and things which had grown old are being made new and that all things are being brought to their perfection in, by him through whom all things were made. Jesus tells them at this point, roll the stone away. And then he thanks the father for hearing him. And then he says, as Father Ryan yelled earlier, 
Lazarus, come out. You can picture this scene. And everyone's kind of sitting there in their tears wondering what's going to happen next. The light of the world, though, don't miss this. What's really happening is the light of the world is shouting into the darkness. And he's bringing life to the dead. He's making the things that weren't into something that is. He's making the dead live, speaking light into darkness. And so Lazarus's death provides this occasion to show God's good work of new creation. Raising Lazarus reminds us that God does not abandon those he loves. It also reminds us that God loves humanity and the creation that he made. And in brokenness, there's hope for redemption, renewal, and new creation. And so as we think about this passage, I've got an encouragement and I've got an application as we think about um, John chapter 11. First, an encouragement that God wants to rebuild what's ruined and what's been ravaged by the fall. Imagine with me what place in your life feels like darkness this morning. What place do you feel like it's just kind of dead and like there's no hope. Like that thing that you used to love and and have affection for and all of a sudden it's not there. Um, But the occasion of darkness in those places when we're honest about it. The occasion of darkness is the context for the salvation of God. What good thing feels like it's not there, it's dead? And then ask God, where do you want to rebuild and remake that? We all have experience with the brokenness of sin and death. Um, And so we can ask God to lighten our darkness um, through the work of Jesus's cross. And then as we think about the application of this passage, one of the ways that we can think about it is joining Jesus and sharing the Father's heart for the brokenness of the world and sharing in the ministry of Jesus by speaking the light of his resurrection into dark places. And that means that you and I first have to become renewed, that you and I have to let God speak the the light of the resurrection into our darkness so that we can speak the light of the resurrection into others. And one of the very practical ways to do this, um, you've heard me say it before, and it won't be the last time I've said it, I'll say it, but it is in our daily office. And so we've talked about our Book of Common Prayer. Um, and if you're not used to the term office, that sounds foreign. It's a daily prayer time that's in our prayer book, morning and evening. And you think of that as sort of a, how to encapsulate the day in prayer. Coming for the weekly Eucharist is good. I even think it's necessary. And also, we have this really rich tradition in our prayer book of daily formation, morning and evening prayer. We even have midday and a before bedtime prayer called Compline. And, and so we have this formative way of recontextualizing our lives as new creation people for becoming more like Jesus. Are we making space for it? Um, how does it do that? It, it, it takes us through a daily rhythm of confessing and agreeing with God about the things that we've done that we shouldn't or the things that we've neglected that we should have done. And then it invites us to receive God's forgiveness, to hear God's word, pray for the needs of those around us. And then finally, to give thanks as we hear a reminder of God's grace. Now imagine beginning your day with that and ending your day with that, and how it would recontextualize the day. It's a really formative rhythm that places 
all the everyday moments that we have into the contexts of, of what Christ has done for us, of the one who wants to speak light into our dark places. And it provides space to meditate on the things that have been stirring in our souls and stirring in the world around us. And it gives us a chance to offer them to God. Even if you don't have, it takes about 20 minutes. If you don't have 20 minutes, the Book of Common Prayer has these shorter versions called uh, family prayer. So family morning prayer, family evening prayer. Those could take five minutes. Just the consistency of creating a rhythm uh, for prayer teaches us to prioritize time with the one who loves us and knows us better than we know ourselves. And it's easy uh, then in, in the chaos of the week to fit prayer kind of haphazardly into the context of our lives. But we need to think about how to fit the daily stuff of our lives into the context of prayer. I was thinking too about Food, you know, if I am rushing, um, I am not going to cook a meal. I am going to get something that will probably be less healthy for me, might be fast food, whatever. I'm not going to have a balanced diet if I don't make time to nourish myself properly. And, and the same, what is true for, for our physical bodies is true for our souls. And so if you don't have a BCP, that's okay. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, you can go to dailyoffice2019.com. They have it right there laid out for you, both the longer version and the shorter version. You can also, if you listen to podcasts, there's a podcast called the Daily Office Podcast where Andrew Russell reads it in the morning and in the evening. And I've found that super helpful because I have a three-year-old. And so if I'm doing dishes after dinner, I can listen to evening prayer while I'm doing dishes. And that's really helpful. And I know some of you might be in that same boat too. Um, whatever our rhythms are, if you're on the train commuting to work, you know, and you just don't have time to make extra time in the morning, you can listen to things too. Um, the point is that we create rhythms that feed our soul and that we create space for daily conversion and spiritual renewal. If you read C.S. Lewis, one of the things that he talks about, I think it's in his letters to Malcolm, he talks about the, the term regular Christians. And we might think, well, they're people who like regularly go to church. But actually what he means is people who are well-regulated in prayer um, so that when they're encountering those swift and varied changes and chances of this life, kind of like in the collect, um, they draw close to the heart of God. They're well-regulated when they encounter those things. And so the context for revealing, uh, for God revealing his glory as a reminder, it might be painful, but the raising of Lazarus demonstrates that God never loves and then abandons and that God wants to show that he wants to restore the goodness of his creation. That the context of her revealing his glory might be painful, but in the raising of Lazarus, we see that God never loves and then abandons and that he wants to restore his broken creation. Let's pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection, by him through whom all things were made, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.